my first question is I, I heard your 2008 um, commencement address to Minneapolis uh, College of Art and Design. Oh, right. right. I, when I listened to it, uh, which was wonderful, by the way, um, I wondered, I wondered what, how your advice might be different if you were addressing an audience of students that were entering college rather than leaving. I don't know if it'd be that different, Dave. Um, you know, I think that it's the. Um, I guess I guess my advice about the, to the students who are entering college would be to, to maybe perhaps think of college in a slightly different way. Uh, I think that you know, despite the debt that many of many students accumulate, uh, I, I think that thinking about college as uh, merely a pathway to a job is can be very dangerous. Um, I actually think it can harm you in the economic long run. Um, I think that what you, you, you think about college as a place to um, uh, develop uh, all kinds of skills. Uh, and to uh, figure out uh, what you're great at and what you love to do. Um, if you can, if you can figure out what you what you love to do and what you're great at, um, I think you're going to be fine. Um, what what worries me is if people uh, enter college thinking that they have to subscribe to a certain standard kind of curriculum uh, because that's the pathway to a job. And I, I think it's dangerous because for a whole host of reasons. Number one is that if you're doing something that you're not particularly interested in, you're not likely to be very good at it. Uh, and second is that the world is so hard to predict that you know what's hot today might not be hot tomorrow. And if you think about anything technical, my God, um, any kind of technical knowledge becomes obsolete in a couple of years. And so, you know, you should be looking at it as, uh, you know, in a, in a broader sense, figuring out, um, you know, developing great work habits and figuring out um, building some good skills, particularly writing, communication, analytic thinking, creativity, uh, and then figuring out, you know, what it is you're, you know, getting a glimpse of what it is you're put on earth to do. Uh, I think that works out far for, I think it's that, and this is not a kind of a nicey, nice view. I think that's like very hard headed economic advice. You, you talk about that changing world, um, this movement into a conceptual age, and you actually articulate the trends, I think, quite well in your book. My question is, is why hasn't our culture responded quicker? Uh, it's interesting. I, I think it's a couple of reasons. Number one is that um, uh, there actually is a smidgen of evidence that says that if, if, you do, if you do treat college as merely a way to get a job, that it might be effective in getting your first job. That is, if you detest accounting but still major in accounting um, and just suffer through it and do reasonably well, uh, you might be able to get a job, a higher paying job, more quickly out of college than one of your contemporaries. The problem is, is that if you hate accounting, you're going to be a terrible accountant. <laughs> so that, per that, person, that person who uh, was doing things that she liked might might start a little bit slower, but it's going to pass you by very, very, very quickly. Um, and uh, you know, and so I think we sometimes get seduced by the short term, you know, by very short term and what are short term and ultimately uh, illusory gains. Um, the second is that you know we tend to think that um, you know we I you know there are a whole host of reasons. One is that you know at a certain point it was pretty good advice to to do this. I mean, when technical knowledge lasted a long time, um, it wasn't necessarily a bad idea to go to college, get the technical knowledge, and deploy it for the next ten or fifteen years. But it doesn't work that way anymore. I see this in my own generation. I mean, I'm forty five years old, and I saw a lot of people who I went to college with major in engineering, 
Now, many of them majored in engineering because they were pretty facile with math, um, and they knew that they would get a job um, because there was a, the personal computer was just coming out, so that was going to be a big industry. The Cold War was going to go on forever, so there'd always be jobs in, the, in defense contracting. And lo and behold, many of them are now my age, and you know they were mediocre account, they were mediocre engineers. They were so-so engineers who didn't really like it. Oh, you know, a generation ago, you could be a so-so engineer and get a job. Now you can't. You got to be really good at it. And the only way to be good at something, or the best way to be good at something, is to really like it and really work hard at it. And so. Um, you know, but again, we sometimes abide by rules that have since been repealed. Um, and so we also, you know, we're, we're also, we also, I think we're bad, and parents are bad risk managers uh, in some sense. I mean, I actually think that it's riskier to major in something, to study something you don't like because you think it's going to lead to a job. Than it is, I think that's a bigger risk than it is to study something you, you like and that you're good at, even if you don't know precisely where it's going to, uh, where, where it's going to lead. I think that the, I think that a better risk manager takes the latter. Uh, but the thing is that that's very contrary to the conventional wisdom. Well, and, and you just brought up a really good point because in this competitive marketplace, um, parents, at least from my perspective, are engaged in their children's education like never before. Way too much. And, and, and many of the disciplines that you see as rising uh, the ones that you write about, uh, the more of the design, the artistic kind of notions, the storytellers, if you will, um, those are exactly the ones they don't support. <laughs> you know what? What would you what would you say to convince them, Dan? To, to say to parents. Yes. Yes. Oh man, I would only I would only have I would have them look around their own workplace. All right. Say whatever they do for a living. I would say look at your own workplace. And tell me who the high performers are. Now, are, does that correlate perfectly with SAT scores? Are the, are the highest performers that, at your office, the people who got the, the, the highest uh, math SAT scores? Probably not. What is it that these high performers have in, have in common with each other? Well, I think what they'll tell you if you get them in a, you know, a reflective enough mood is that the high performers in their own office are people who have, who, who are, uh, have great work habits, who are very persistent. Uh, who are creative, uh, who have good people skills, uh, and who actually really dig what they're doing. And those are, none of those, I think they would say that about their own office, and none of those are the sorts of things that they're telling their kids to do. It's like they're operating in two different, you know, they're two different worlds. And every once in a while, you get that shock of revelation in parents when they say, oh, right, yeah. Well, I think about Fred. Fred is a total superstar in our office, and, you know, um, <laughs> You know, he, you know, he didn't go to some fancy four-year college or he doesn't have, you know, he didn't do that great and he might not have done that great in school. But my God, the guy is like unbelievably creative. He works his butt off. Uh, he relates very well to people, understands where they're, where they're coming from. And, you know, he loves uh, insurance or rutabagas or making films um, more than life itself. That's why he's so good at it. You were decades past, Dan, a, a college degree uh, nearly guaranteed a job. I mean, I right. in the 60s, you could graduate with a degree seemingly in anything, and if you wanted yeah. to get a job, you could. Uh, yeah. Obviously, as you just alluded to, the, the today the impact is minimal. Um, if it's less about the diploma, how should a student best be utilizing their time in college? Uh, I think they should for, for a number of things. I think part of it is um, is skill building. 
the ability uh, and, and, a, and a couple of specific skills. I think, um, uh, you know, rigorous left brain analytic thinking is an important thing that you can get in college. Now, you can learn that. It's, it's really the skill of thinking is more important than whether you learn that skill in the discipline of anthropology or the discipline of biology or the discipline of comparative literature. But I think that way of thinking. Uh, writing. Um, I don't, you know, I'm obviously biased since I'm a writer, but I think that people who can write, who can express themselves, have a huge advantage. I think it, 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 it allows them to think more clearly. It allows them to persuade people. And, you know, as you know, in your own work, so much about your day to day work is about persuading people, mm -hmm. getting them to sign on to this project, getting them to do things a certain, you know, getting them to do a certain set of things, getting financing for certain things. And, you know, and I think writing and too, too often writing is sort of segregated into the English programs when, in fact, I think you should be writing across disciplines. Um, so so analytic thinking, writing. And I also think, you know, just the, the um, um, uh, creativity writ large, that is the ability to iterate something new, something the world didn't know it was missing. It doesn't necessarily have, you know, I don't even care whether it's a painting or a sculpture or a film or, or something, but, you know, your ability to create something that didn't otherwise exist. I think those are very powerful skills. Um, and I think also those are kind of external skills. I think the internal skills are understanding, get a better sense of understanding who you are, what you're about what you're great at, what you love to do, what makes you tick. Um, I think that offers a, I think students today have a luxury that maybe students 50 years ago necessarily didn't have in college. Um, now, now the, the downside is that a lot of times, it, it, and, I, and I would recommend that people go to college, the, the, the data are overwhelming, that if you have a four-year college degree, you're going to earn more, no matter what you do, than someone who doesn't. It's not even close. I would, I, you know, I, it's not like I say, oh, you should bypass. I mean, I think there are a few people who might want to bypass college. I think there's some people who might not want to go to college immediately, who might want to do something else, who might want to work or do volunteer work or serve in the military and then come to college. Those students tend to do very good, very well. Mm -hmm. um, um, but um, what worries me a little bit is that college, for some people, has become essentially this kind of extended adolescence where they're actually not developing many, much in the way of skills. They're not really, they're not moving toward any greater self-understanding. They're just kind of screwing around. And that's fun. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm all for people having some amount of fun, but I think that's actually a pretty significant waste, especially if you're going into debt to screw around. You, uh, you note in your work, Dan, that it's a, uh, maybe impossible is too strong a word, but the notion of a student mapping out every step ahead of time um, to figure out where they want to end up is really not a realistic uh, goal. What kind of planning should they be doing? If if you can't really, if they, you know, I think one of your one of your uh, kind of six principles or uh, principles that was in uh, one of your early books talked about there really is no plan. Um, what kind of planning should the students be doing? Well, I mean, I think they should be looking with, you know, very sharp eyes and a very hard head about, you know, the workplace that they're going to inhabit. And I think at a broad level, they have to think about, um, you know, the you know, that 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 routine skills are no longer valuable. That that the kind of the algorithmic, uh, rule-based, uh, purely left-brain sorts of abilities are easy to outsource and easy to automate. And that they're not going to be doing that kind of work any more than very many people in our generation are doing routine uh, blue collar work. Um, so I think that at a, at a level, they have to be very, very hard headed about um, about that and, and, and quote unquote, plan accordingly. 
Um, I think that um, that the world is so tumultuous right now um, that planning in any kind of more elaborate way it can be very dangerous. So, you know, if you say I'm going to do this in five years and this five years after that, that's never going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Um, I think what you have to be able to, and, and this is where this earlier point comes in. I think this is where the uh, having a robust set of skills and having some understanding of yourself is so important. Because if you have skills, those sort of basic, those kind of very powerful skills of, uh, of expression, of analytic thinking, of creativity, um, then you can do a lot of different things. And if you have some self-understanding, you understand what it is you're great at, who you are, I think you can navigate that tumultuous world much more, much more easily. And, you know, in, you know, so I talk about the difference in the book that you referenced. I talk about the difference between instrumental reasoning and fundamental reasoning, mm -hmm. that instrumental reasoning, you, you make a decision because you think it's going to lead to something else. So you major in X because you think it's going to lead to a job or you take a job that you don't really like because you think it's going to be a stepping stone to something else. Uh, fundamental reasoning is you major in a subject because you like it even though you don't know what the job prospects are. Uh, you take a job at, at a place that you think is interesting to work at, even though you don't know exactly where it's gonna lead. And um, my view on this is that, you know, there's again, it's, it goes back to our earlier thing about the wrong risk assessment. I actually think that instrumental reasons are dangerous because they don't work very well, that the world changes too quickly. And so you might want to go from A to B to C to D. By the time you get to B, C and D might have gone out of business, disappeared, no longer exists. <laughs> and then suddenly, you're, oh, man, I here I am at B. The whole point of being at B was to go to C, but C has disappeared. What am I going to do? Whereas um, you know, people who say, I'm going, to go to, I'm going to go to B because B is cool and I think it's interesting, they actually have a more expansive view. Uh, and if they're equipped with the skills and self-understanding, they can they can move more quickly. And here's the thing. I mean, it's funny um, because when 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 I you know the few times I've said this to college students, I get this kind of very split response. Some of them have this incredible look of relief over their face, and others of them, it's the exact opposite. They're completely terrified. Um, and and, and, and some of them are skeptics. They're saying, oh, you say you can't plan it out too, too intricately. That can't be right. And I, and, and I have a proof point here, a test. I, you know, I say, go find someone you know, 40 years and above who's doing something interesting. You look at that person, you say, wow, it'd be really cool to be a search engine optimizer. It'd be really cool to uh, run a small business. It'd be really cool to be a lawyer who represents uh, criminal defendants or whatever. And you know, say to that person, that, that, that adult, how'd you get to be doing what you're doing? I guarantee you that, that the interesting people are going to say, it's a long story. Um, and they're going to tell a story of not of planning, but of uh, chance and circumstance, but also chance and circumstance that you're able to take oppor be opportunistic about because you're open minded, you're nimble, you know what you're good at, you have a good sense of who you are and you're willing to, you know, take a few risks. It worries me a little bit about how, you know, you think about how young people are supposed to be the big risk takers, but I find a lot of them just unbelievably risk averse. I mean, risk averse in kind of a you know, an old man way. <laughs> you, you talk, Dan, about uh, the notion of students focusing on their strengths. Um, and for some young people, that's, that's easy to recognize. They, they know what they're good at. They know what they love to do. But what do you recommend for that student? And I have, I've seen disturbingly more and more of them that, that uh, can't identify a passion. If you ask them what they're passionate about, 
Yeah. They can't identify something. How, what do you, what do you yeah. say to that student? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think um, I'm not a big fan of that question. You know, what are you passionate about? I, I don't like being asked that question myself. I think it's too, I, I think it's a very intimidating question because someone says to me, Pink, what's your passion? And I'd like, oh God, this better be a really good answer. Um, and I, I think there are other ways to look at it. I mean, one way to look at it is, um, is to say, you know, what do you do when no one's telling you what to do? What do you do for fun? What do you do because it's interesting? And, you know, everyone always tells you do what you love. But I think that there's some good advice in people just doing what they do. And I'll give you a personal example of that, something that I realized only in retrospect. So I worked uh, in politics for a while. But the whole, even when I was in law school, but, you know, beginning when I was in law school, when I first got out of college and was working, when I was in law school, then I went into work in, in politics. All that time, which is a long stretch of time, uh, on the side, I was writing articles for newspapers and magazines. Uh, in college, I was, you know, doing, or in, in law school, I was doing the minimum number of papers that I could do, but I was writing some, excuse me, some magazine articles. I was writing op-eds for the local newspaper. Uh, I went to work in politics. I was doing, I was writing a magazine column on the side. I was doing some other kind of magazine writing. Uh, and, and, and when I was working in politics, I couldn't, because of ethical rules, I couldn't get paid for this stuff. I was doing it for free. Um, and, you know, I only saw this in retrospect, but it's like, oh, that's what you do. All right. And so, um, and, you know, so I think that, you know, we need to sort of watch what we do. And so do what you love is good advice. Do what you do uh, is, is better advice. And that's an easier, I find that a far less intimidating question. Um, then what's your passion? It's a good answer. You, uh, you talk about one of your principles to success is the idea of persistence trumps talent. Um, Absolutely. While, you know, while uh, many of us get uh, you know, quickly discouraged, it really is about hard work, isn't it? I mean, that's really is the secret. Absolutely. And I see that more and more, man, I just see that more and more each each day that you know everybody wants a quick fix and excellence doesn't happen quickly it takes a huge amount of time it takes a huge amount of dedication it takes a huge amount of pain and um and i just see i I've just seen so many times over and over again where someone who is extremely persistent uh, out, uh, outperforms someone who might have more inherent talent i don't put a huge there's an interesting book called um with a great title by jeff colvin called talent is overrated and um, and I generally agree with that. I mean, I think you have to have a minimum. I think you have to have some level of talent. Um, for instance, you know, I don't care how much I practice. I was never going to be a point guard in the NBA. But the truth is, is that if I, you know, for a long time, practice really, really hard at basketball, I could become a pretty darn good basketball player. And yeah, and I, I think that getting great at something takes a huge amount of work and that in some ways we've oversold talent and undersold the importance of just working your butt off. As a, as a species, Dan, we have proven to be pretty poor predictors of what makes us happy. Um, yeah. I enjoyed an article uh, that you wrote that called for a national index of well-being. Um, if, oh, my. All right. Yeah, if you had, if you had a magic wand, Dan, um, what market-based changes uh, would you make to enhance our happiness? What kind of public policy initiatives would you implement? Yeah, I don't... Um... You know, I think that one of the things in this country that we don't have is I, I don't know whether we have enough of a, a floor underneath people. Um, I, I, I think that, 
you know, one of the things that I'm discovering, I'm not, not something that I necessarily believed for a long time, but something that I think I'm awakening to is that you know, inequality in a country, in a world, um, in a society, um, is actually detrimental to everybody, uh, even the people at the on the positive side of that inequality. So I think that um, that I think that's one issue. Um, I think it's disgraceful in this country that we have 13% of the country living below the poverty line. That just shouldn't that just shouldn't be allowed. Um, and um, so I, I, you know, I think it's those two big. I think those two. If those are obviously gigantic policy challenges, but I think addressing those would go a um, a very long way. Now, the other thing is that um, I don't. I just don't think that our leaders, political leaders, ask enough of people. Um, I, I think that there is a difference in they, they treat voters like consumers instead of like um, citizens, and you know consumers. You, you know, have no other obligations. That's fine. You want good customer service. You want people to, you know, pay their money. But but citizens, it's, it's a different it's a different thing. It's being a citizen is very different from being a uh, a consumer. And so you know, so here we have this, um, you know, these these debts running out of running out of uh, running out of control. We have these liabilities in Social Security and Medicare going to clobber the generation that's in college right now, and. No one's talking with any seriousness about raising the frickin' retirement age. We have the retirement age, it's going up over 24 years to age 67. The retirement age was fixed at 65 when life expectancy in this country was 60. And so, you know, now we have life expectancy running into the 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, I think that we have to say, um, you, this is one example, it's like, no, we, we're, we're going to push back the retirement age a few years. You owe something more. Um, I think it's true. Uh, you know, I think that one of the reasons that we that we're spending so much money in these wars is that um, no one has an obligation to serve. Um, you know, we basically and so it's mostly people who can't find opportunity, you know, not always, but it's it's some incredibly valiant people uh, and uh, people who I think become valiant, um, uh, but whose decision is really um, uh, made by lack of other kind of economic opportunities. And so, meantime, you know, we're, we're in this war in Afghanistan for nearly a decade, and this, I'm not, I don't, I don't know, you know, you read about Great Britain in the, in World War II, I, I don't feel like we're living in a country at war, uh, because no one's asking anything of any, we're not even asking to raise our taxes. And so, um, so, you know, I just think that we need to start treating people like citizens, and I think the dirty little secret is, you mentioned some of the happiness research, is that, you know, people actually increase their subjective well-being by um, helping others. And I just don't think that our, our leaders are asking enough of this. Now, I think that people do it on their own. If you look at the incredible rise in volunteerism going on over the last decade or so, I think there's a yearning out there to do something meaningful and to contribute. Um, but uh, it's happening in the absence of any kind of political leadership. As someone who teaches, I teach courses on play and leisure, I know that uh, these topics are are largely marginalized in our culture or uh, seeing that kind of intrinsic nature that they bring or seen as kind of utopian ideas. Um, what do you think it's going to take uh, for true, true change to happen? What kind of tipping point do you think it's going to take for us to, to look at some of these issues of, of uh, quality of life, play, leisure, uh, the, the things that truly make us happy as opposed to being a, I mean, as you know, we're a culture that, uh, uh, hardest working industrialized culture in the world in the sense of hours that we put in. 
What's your what's your thought on on what it's going to take for a tipping point to kind of look at that differently? Yeah, well, I mean, on that on that point about, I actually think that the the fact that um, we're a harder working country than than most most places, I think part of that is due to economics, but I think also part of it is is a change in that there are a lot of people, probably people like you and me, who actually like what they do, um, and so work isn't this kind of disutility; it's a utility. It's something that you actually you actually want to do. I mean, not every night do you want to stay late, but some nights it's so interesting you want to spend a little bit more time. So I don't think that's necessarily uh, a bad thing as long as it's you know more or less uh, volitional. But as for the tip, you know, I don't know. I don't think there's going to be a single event. I think it'll happen more slowly. What gives me a sense of optimism is 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 these kinds of conversations, is knowing that there are folks like you and, and other folks out there in this country who are having these kinds of conversations, uh, who are challenging certain orthodoxies, who are thinking, you know, in, in different ways. Uh, and, you know, these conversations are going on a lot. They're not the dominant conversation necessarily, but they're not just, you know, two or three people on, on a bar stool in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, it's a lot of, there are a lot of conversations going on and I'm heartened, you know, um, it, you know, in the sense that, you know, folks like you are harvesting the book for ideas. Um, you know, the book was the Holy Minds of Freshman Read at a few colleges and universities. Maybe that in some tiny little way will, 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 uh, will move, will move the needle. But I mean, I really think my theory of social change is conversation based that, you know, if you look at anything good on the planet, uh, most of them happen with a conversation. Every great romance, every great love affair began with a conversation. Every great new business began with a conversation. Every great social movement began with a conversation. And I think that there are a lot of these kinds of conversations led by people like you taking place out there. And um, I think that ultimately the cumulative force of those is going gonna, is gonna to change things. I don't know whether that's one year off, probably not. Um, but um, I don't, you know. But I think it's you know, maybe it's ten years off. Uh, but I, uh, but I, I think it's inevitable based on the, the volume of conversation and the number of people who are joining them. The uh, the idea, Dan, of a pursuing a life of meaning and purpose really resonates with me personally. And and uh, you know, I wonder what your feelings are. What can we learn from um, our seniors? Um, mm. You know, about the importance of making this meaning and purpose a priority in our lives. Um, I, I think there's a lot, I think there's a, I think there's a lot to be, um, I think there's a lot to learn, although they might not, the seniors, seniors might not want to listen to me because they just said we should raise the retirement age. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I, I do think that there is, I mean, there's a principle in developmental psychology of generativity, uh, by Eric Erickson, who, and it's basically at a certain point in our lives, um, what becomes really central salient is, what we're going to contribute, what we're going to leave for the next generation, what our legacy is going to be. And um, I actually think that we have so many boomers hitting that age group that uh, we have a chance for that to take on a really, really ferocious, um, ferocious um, uh, force. Uh, I actually think that there's, you know, I, I think one of the great things would be, um, you know, having college students go and talk to um, someone in their 70s or 80s and just say, hey, you know, you've been around for a while. What would you, what, what do you wish you had known when you were my age? And I, I think that would be an extraordinary thing. And I think, I think they're not, a senior, an 80 year old person is not going to say to a, a, um, um, uh, an 18 year old person, don't take any risks. Don't do what you like. <laughs> you know, 
take the safe route. I mean, they're just not going to give that advice. And whether they did it or not, I mean, and, um, and I think that would be very helpful for those, those students and for the country. In the, the spirit of your book, Drive, I'm going to try an experiment with this course, and uh, I'm going to really try to appeal solely to my students' intrinsic nature. Um, without the carrots and sticks of grades and the kind of memorized exams and the, the kind of note-taking that that entails, um, how do you think that's going to work, um, that experiment? Uh, uh, will students uh, show up to, to lectures if... Uh, if the grade isn't the uh, the carrot and the stick that drives them, we'll see. I mean, that's what <laughs> it's an experiment. Um, you know, I, I actually think that uh, that that students could uh, students could uh, really surprise us. That um, that some of them, not all of them, uh, have an intrinsic desire to to learn, and uh, they actually, um, uh, you know, in some ways. Uh, appreciate having a little bit more control over what they actually do, um, and you know when you, you know if you if you force people to come to lectures, if it becomes quote unquote mandatory, um, then you look out there as a teacher, you have no idea who's there because they're compliant and who's there because they're engaged. Um, in the other way, you know, oh wow, here are the students who are engaged, and my hunch is that the students who are engaged are going to perform better. One, one final question for you, Dan. I'm, I'm creating a, a set of, for lack of a better word, kind of Ten Commandments for the course. Um, a, list of, uh, a list that articulates kind of the unique approach to higher education I'm hoping to foster, kind of a different vision. If you were to add one commandment for today's university classroom, uh, what would it be? Hmm. Um. Hmm. Uh, thou shalt challenge orthodoxy. All right. Uh, in the sense of, you know, whatever orthodoxy you have. I mean, um, um, you know, it could be the orthodoxy of, as you were talking about before, of lectures. I mean, why not have the professor just, if he or she has 10 lectures in the course, put the lectures on YouTube and the students can watch them whenever they want and have the actual class sessions be more valuable and interactive. Um, uh, you know, challenge challenge the orthodoxy of uh, that economic progress should be measured only by GDP. Uh, challenge the orthodoxy that pick an orthodoxy and challenge it. It doesn't have to, you know, and um, and try that. I think the college is a really great time to do that. And it's you know the, the folks who are willing to and some orthodoxies are right, uh, I, but I think that you shouldn't accept anything without evaluating it. I think that's isn't that the whole point of college is to be an uh, you know is to be inquisitive to um, uh, push for truth to uh, evaluate things in a hard-headed way. Um, you know, so I think thou shalt challenge orthodoxies. <laughs> I think it's a great one. Dan, thanks so much for your time and, uh, and for the inspiration of your work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and, and having this great conversation. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye.